You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Natish Badmanaban. Uh, he's a fifth-year PhD student at Stanford. We're going to be talking about uh, a new type of uh, glasses and or lens. Sounds interesting. I'll let Natish describe it. So thanks for coming, Natish. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, good. How are you, Richard? Yeah, good. I'm literally looking forward through my glasses to uh, what you have to say. So tell me about the... Uh, the problem in vision and what you're doing to uh, to improve it or solve it. Sure. Um, the problem in vision is, uh, well, deceivingly simple. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that like when people get older, they tend to like move whatever they're reading further away from them. And then they get reading glasses or bifocal lenses. Uh, but what we want to do is change that process around a little bit. So the reason that people get these uh, reading glasses or bifocal lenses is because the lens in their eye actually stops being able to refocus. It stiffens up over time. Um, and what we saw was a problem where we were trying to you know, fix a stiff lens that used to be able to change its shape with another stiff lens in the form of glasses. And so we were, we were just thinking, hey, wait, what if we instead use these focus tunable lenses that can also change their shape to replace the functionality that was lost by your eyes lens that could before change shape? And so that's how the autofocals project was born. Um, and so, yeah, we built uh, eye tracking and everything around uh, focus tunable lens systems so that it would automatically refocus to whatever somebody was looking at so that everything is always in sharp focus. So how does the uh, lens focus automatically at what people look at? Um, so, yeah, that, that comes down to our eye tracking software. Uh, we use two different eye trackers plus a depth camera. And how this works is uh, if you have the position of, of both eyes, which you do because you can just measure it ahead of time, you know how far apart your eyes are, that doesn't change. And then you use eye trackers to measure the directions that both eyes are pointing in. You can kind of draw a triangle and figure out how far away those two eyes intersect. And that gives you a, a distance. But it turns out this is actually pretty noisy with current eye trackers. And so we kind of augmented it with a depth camera. So the depth camera looks out at the world and sees exactly how far away everything is. And you can combine this with eye tracking information to figure out exactly how far the one thing that they're looking at is. 
And depth cameras have their own problems with, uh, you know, if they're not quite sure if you're looking right in front of or behind an edge, like say you're looking at like the, the last word on the line of a book, but then behind the book is something further away. Depth cameras would get confused there. So we combine the first eye tracking information that I described and the depth camera information that I'm describing and put them together intelligently so that we always get a good estimate. And then from there, uh, the focus trimble lenses actually, um, they're these liquid lenses that you just kind of uh, pump in liquid behind a membrane and it actually just changes the shape. And when you change the shape of the lens, you change its power. So that's how the, the rest of the pipeline works. Well, how fast if I orient my eyes on something, do I need to uh, have it in focus to be able to see how fast do people do that naturally? So naturally, there's a, there's a couple different numbers. First, there's the response time. And the response time is a couple hundred milliseconds. So if somebody were to randomly stick something in front of your face, it would take you a couple, couple hundred milliseconds uh, to start refocusing. Once you start refocusing, it takes another, maybe say half a second to actually be at the final focus position. Uh, but it turns out that when this happens in the real world, our brains kind of just block out a lot of the information when you're moving eye position from one to another. So you don't actually notice this going on, but it's always happening. On the other hand, our system, uh, it necessarily has to be after you move your eyes. So you do notice it, but it's a lot faster because uh, it's not depending on on your, your brain's reaction time. It's using a computer's reaction time. And so everything, including the lens refocusing, is done in about 150 milliseconds. And that's plenty fast enough for people not to notice any problem. They they do notice it because, like I said, it comes after, but uh, or after your eyes stop moving. Um, but it's fast enough that people don't really seem bothered by it, which is what's important. What are they? What's their experience? Are they seeing things come into focus? You know, yeah, you'll see you'll you'll see, see things exactly. You'll see things be uh, slightly out of focus just for a split second, right when you switch over to a new object that you're looking at, and then it'll snap into focus. How do the cameras know where your eyes are looking? Like, do they look at um, the edges of your pupil, or how do they determine where your eyes are looking? So this is actually something that we want to work on in the future. Um, Basically, there's a calibration process that you have to go through, and it's kind of lengthy. It takes about a minute every time you put on the headset that we have. Uh, basically, you're asked to look at a bunch of targets on the screen in different positions, and it builds up a little map of, oh, if they're looking at this target and their eyes in this position, but if they're looking at this other target, then this, their eyes are in this other position. And then they just interpolate between all the different positions based on what uh, the current pupil position is afterwards. How come it's not a straightforward thing where you look, you know, where the center of the pupil pupil would be looking and, you know, say, all right, that's where they're looking. Yeah. So um, this is one of those things where it turns out the pupil doesn't actually tell you where people look. So the there are a couple of different things that you care about in gaze direction. And I mean, to simplify it, what, uh, you kind of want to draw a line through your pupil to what's called your fovea. It's like the sharpest part of your vision on your retina. And this, this line actually varies between people and doesn't necessarily correspond exactly to uh, the line from the center of your eyeball to your pupil either. And so even if you were to just watch the pupil move around to get like an idea of where the center of rotation is and draw a line through the pupil there, it still wouldn't quite be right. So because everybody's a little bit different, you have to do this calibration process. But ideally, you'd minimize it somehow so it doesn't take you know, an entire minute. And then in terms of look, what I'm looking at, how far away it is, how, does, I mean, how would you ever know that? You can measure 
you know, an object in front of me, but I guess I would think you'd have to first know where I'm looking. Right. And then so, correspond that with the object I'm looking at to see how far away it is. Exactly, exactly. So part of this calibration also uh, correlates that depth camera image, which knows how far away everything is, with the eye tracking information. So it's simultaneously doing a uh, mapping from eye to direction to depth camera pixel. And so with that, you can kind of get, get an estimate based on the depth camera of how far you're looking. But importantly, you don't actually need this depth estimate. Um, if you uh, just imagine drawing a line between the two of your eyes and then drawing another line from each eye pointing in the direction of whatever object you're looking at, right? The, what the eye trackers are doing are giving you this pointing direction for both eyes. And so if you just uh, follow those lines out until they meet somewhere in the distance, uh, you'll actually get a depth estimate, which you can just draw a little triangle and kind of calculate the size of each side to figure out. So it's, it's really just geometry at the end of the day. Well, since people see in stereo, the left mm-hmm. eye is seeing differently from the right eye. I mean, do you have to independently calculate where both eyes are looking? Well, once you get one eye, you know, based on the distance the other eyes away, it's looking the, at a complementary angle. No, no, we, we, we have to use both eyes. So we actually have an eye tracker for each eye so that we can independently calculate that, that angle. With the depth camera, you can theoretically use one eye, but uh, like I said, you, you really want to use both because both of them have their drawbacks so that you uh, get the best information from both parts. Okay. So what are, what are some of the parameters you want to improve to make this better? Like uh, you want to reduce the time to focus, you know, from the 150 milliseconds down, or is it the initial calibration? You want to reduce um, from a minute to 10 seconds or what's the goal? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different competing goals. We're still trying to figure out uh, what the most important goal to focus on is, but I think as a first step based on just our strengths, we'd want to maybe work on the eye tracking to make it more robust because there's, there's a lot of inaccuracy involved in eye tracking and it's why we need the depth cameras. And if you could make the eye tracking more robust and more accurate, you might actually be able to not have the depth camera. And that feeds into another thing that we want to work on, which is weight and power consumption and, and form factor. If you reduce the number of components, you can you know, cut down on all three of those at the same time. Um, and then, of course, there's just you know, the weight, form factor, power consumption in general for the eye tracking and the, the computing, because currently we require an entire computer to do all the computation. So low power algorithms, for example, there, there's a lot to be done. It's a, it's a matter of where we want to go first with it. And I don't think we're, we're quite sure yet. How heavy are the glasses and how big are they? Um, so we actually based our glasses right now off of a VR headset design, as you might have seen in the in the photos. I, I think I uh, see from your description in the podcast that actually like you've seen the, the photographs, right? So right. The, the reason is because it's basically just a uh, VR headset without the screen in front of it. Um, a lot of my research before this project had been working on VR headsets. And so we basically repurposed a lot of that technology to, to make the eyeglasses. Um, and it also, there, there's another reason that it looks like a VR headset. And it's that a lot of eye trackers don't handle motion very well. Um, which is to say relative motion between the eye trackers and your head. So if we didn't have it strapped securely in place, the eye trackers with the entire headset would move around. Like, you know, you're, you, if you wear glasses, you know that your glasses move around all day and that tended to break our calibration. And so we needed something that would really, really just stay put. And so that's kind of why we have this VR headset format. 
Well, I guess if you got the calibration time down low enough, it wouldn't matter if they move around. It would right. I mean, be recalibrating, right? Right. Right. So if uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different things we uh, you could do here. You could maybe if you're somehow clever enough, you could make it so that it uh, doesn't need calibration at all, or at least only needs a single calibration and actually is aware of the fact that the glasses can shift around. We're not quite sure how to do this yet, but these are all just possible directions that we could go in. So have users worn these, you know, for everyday uh, vision or are they still tethered to a computer and they can't walk around? We still have them tethered to a computer. Um, we, I mean, we did test it on users, but it was mostly, you know, a few minutes to an hour worth of testing per user because, again, you can't really drag a computer with you everywhere. They, they do have those VR backpacks, but uh, we also only had one prototype, so we weren't really willing to, to just let it go free out into the wild without our supervision or anything. Um, but, you know, theoretically, if you uh, were to, I mean, for now, strap a backpack with a computer on it, uh, you know, just imagine like you're carrying a laptop all the time, right? Um, or, you know, maybe it turns out we don't actually need all the high power algorithms that we're using uh, and we can cut back somewhere. Then they could probably wear it around all day. But for now, no, it's, uh, it's a tethered system. You, know, you can't have a cell phone and use the cellular data network and the cell phone's computing power to, to be enough to make it work? It might. Um, the cell phone computing power might be enough. We haven't actually tested it, but um, the data network might not be a great way to go because that will int- introduce a lot of latency, actually. So wireless is something that you could do maybe in the future, but it requires low latency that maybe 5G is low enough latency, but I'm not quite sure. Um, it's not really my area of, of expertise there. Um but yeah, there there are ways around this. You can you can imagine something like, for example, the I don't know if you're familiar with uh, augmented reality headsets, but the Magic Leap, uh, for example, has this little hockey puck shaped thing that you stick in your pocket, and that's where actually a lot of the computation and the battery is held. And so you can imagine you could do something similar for for these glasses. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if you could again use a cell phone or, like you said, a hockey puck in the pocket. You know, this would be a great way to to get it out of the lab and people using it all over the place. You know. Right, right. It's uh, you know, the it's one of those things where yes, it's a technological solution that's possible, but you wonder if people will actually use it. And augmented reality headsets are are kind of in in one way a proving ground of look, this technology exists, it can be carried around in the real world and people uh are willing to buy it, but then you look at it and you're like, well, people aren't going to wear this all the time because it's big and clunky or uh, the battery only lasts for a few hours, and maybe that's not as useful for glasses. And so we have a slightly different set of constraints in that in that sense. Well, do you have people, I mean, yourself or other people that have been in the lab, even though they're tethered to a computer, they're looking around and you know maybe moving around a step or two, or at least looking around. Like, what's their experience with wearing these glasses? What's it like for them versus normal glasses? Oh, um, yeah, people uh, really, really like using them. Um, like once they're calibrated and everything, uh, it tends to work. It's a lot more natural to use than typical reading glasses or bifocals um, because the experience with reading glasses is you have to put them on to see close up and then take them off to see far away, which you know introduce a lot of lag time if you're maybe writing something on your computer or like on a piece of paper and then all of a sudden somebody asks you to look up at something, then you have to take off your glasses to transition between those two. And that's... That's something that as a 
younger person when your eyes can still refocus you don't even think about but it becomes a, a significant like waste of time um if you're older and have to do this a lot and so that's that's one of those things where it's it's really an experience sort of thing that's that's hard to describe until you try it and until you're presbyopic i guess um but yeah and the, like everybody we we had uh they either liked it or they thought that it was great, but, you know, it could be smaller, more comfortable, that sort of thing. Okay. So what's the timetable on this? Like you said, you have uh, many different goals, possibly competing goals. What what interest are you seeing? Like, is it, um, you know, from industry, for industrial applications? Is it for just regular, you know, regular users that want to use it for their vision? Is it for the gaming industry, you know, because you'll have a better eye tracker than anyone else? Like, where do you see this going? I think... Uh, at least in the near term, we want to focus on the eyeglasses problem in particular. Uh, you know, VR has plenty of people working on it. Um, we, we don't need to also step into the same space, I think. Uh, but, you know, there are a few uh, companies that are working on this sort of automatic presbyopia correction. And we're not quite... Uh, decided how we want to fit into that. Maybe we just partner with people or, um, you know, uh, do research and algorithms uh, by working with them or, you know, they we're also considering a startup. Uh, we're not quite sure in which direction we're going to take it yet, but these are all things that we want to work out in the next year or so um, and then go from there. How long have you been working on the device, like from concept to uh, what you have right now? So we, let's see, we started on it, I think, mid-2017, and then it took us about a year to build, test, and then refine with a second build of the prototype. Uh, And then after that, we were pretty focused on running user studies and getting the paper out, which took another half a year or so. And then for the last half a year, um, we've been kind of focused on other projects, but we're coming back to it, I think. So about a year and a half, let's say. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to, you know, I guess pun intended, keep their eyes on the project and see where it's going? How do they get in touch and ask questions and find out where it's going? Oh, sure. Um, We are always open to uh, email, for example. So if you search my name online or just the autofocals name, uh, our papers and our lab tend to come up. Uh, It has all of our contact information there. Otherwise, I'm sure once we figure out what we're doing, we'll launch a website. So keep your eyes open for that. Okay, very good. Best way to any resources for people, any websites or places for them to find out more? Um, the best place to start is probably our lab website. So that's uh, computationalimaging.org. Uh, you can also just Google Stanford Computational Imaging. And our publication is linked on the website along with a bunch of photos and videos. Okay. Well, all right. Very good. So Natish, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40... I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. 
FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.